What's poppin' y'all? My name is Ray Ray. My pronouns are she, hers, they, them, and I'm the administrative assistant at ASA, African American Student Affairs, and Masculinities in the Mix. So welcome to season two of The Shift. We have new content in store for this next season. Just as an update, we will be releasing new episodes every other Tuesday rather than every Tuesday now. On this week's episode, we have Joshua Hamilton interviewing Dr. Darius Carter, who's a professor in gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona. They'll be covering blackness and how it looks in academic spaces for different folks. We hope you enjoy. What's going on, everyone? My name is Joshua Hamilton. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I currently serve as the Interim Director for African American Student Affairs. I'm joined today by Dr. Darius Carter. You can introduce yourself. Cool. I'm Darius Carter. That's Darius like Paris with a D. Uh, pronouns he, him, his, they, girl, um, but only when we're real close. <laughs> um, what am I? I am a Black Studies scholar. I just so happen to be working in gender and women's studies here um, at U of A, and I'm an assistant professor. Trying to get tenure, slowly but surely. That's what's up. The grind. Ooh. Slow grind. Mm-hmm. So give a brief description. Um, we're going to have a conversation about black masculinity and its makeup um, when navigating the academy. So my first question is, what do you see as black masculinity in these predominantly white spaces? So I'm really, really evasive when it comes to definitions. Mm. Um, I'm so big on context. Like, I'm, I'm much more interested in, like, how especially black folks improvise with gender and sexuality. And so masculinity for me is going to be a negotiation of both, like, the dominant codes of gender, but also, like, what it is that we're willing to enact, perform, and acquiesce to, um, in part to get checks, other times to get resources, but most importantly, to, to fashion our lives. Um, and that can take, you know, it can look a number of ways. Sometimes it is very respectable. It's like a suit and tie, like you dress in your Sunday's best. But we know from, like, the history of respectability politics that that ain't saved us from anti-blackness. And so I'm like, I didn't have time to do my nails today, but, like, usually I have black nails. Um, black nails, statement rings, the whole nine. For me... It's at times I'll say it's an articulation of black masculinity, but most times I'm just interested in like black selfhood, period. And could you dive a little deeper in that? Yeah, yeah. So I love black feminist scholarship. And one of my favorite writers is Tony K. Bambara. She's got this collection from like 1969 or 70. I think it was like the first anthology of writing um, that's all on black women. And it's called The Black Woman. So good. Um, But she's got this piece in it where she is pushing readers or encouraging readers to grapple with what it is or what it means for black women to be betwixt in between the so-called woman question and the black question. Right. And for her, she's like, well, what if we stop taking on the gender prerogatives of the dominant group? This is me like paraphrasing (laughs) immensely. Um, She's like, what if we stop taking on the gender prerogatives of the dominant group and instead got back to a question of selfhood? Right. Which is to say, what if your experience rooted in blackness and black experience became the basis for your entertaining the idea of gender? Because historically, like black folk ain't have gen- like it wasn't a given. It's still not a given. We're largely taking on the, the dominant or the codes of the dominant group. And so for me, I'm like, let me figure out this blackness thing. And if and when I choose to take on and perform gender, then I'll do that. But I ain't simply going to do it because I'm coerced into the shit. Right. Like, no, <laughs> no, that ain't life. And so when examining that that blackness or people being coarse, I guess more from a like a meta perspective, mm-hmm. I mean, how would you define that makeup is? Or like how do people actually navigate that? And I know black folks are not monolithic. We have different ways of being and knowing. Mm-hmm. But how does that when it comes to the academy? Oh, man. It, so I'll start with conferences. 
Um, <laughs> be more know. specific. What do you mean? Conferences yeah. like what? Like, yeah, yeah. So like these academic conferences where it's like, you know, we have to go and show up and show out. It's like conferences are where we're presenting our we're presenting our papers, our research in the form of papers, and we're demonstrating that we can go somewhere in public and we can do those nice like web to web networking mm. handshakes. We can speak well, we can perform diction and clarity and rigorous intellectual engagement. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I understand like the professional etiquette, whatever that, you know, we have to negotiate in that space. But there's also this whole other aspect of conferences, which for me is um, far more personal, which is like we go and we see our people. Like those are the spaces where we it's the academic version of like reunions. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> we show up to these spaces and the part that we perform to get our check, the part that's wrapped up in professional etiquette and discourses of professionalism, right? Like that's the part that we have to do. And I'm using like big ass scare quotes here so that we can get reimbursed. That's the thing that we could perform so that the institution looks like it's doing its job. Right. So we perform that. I don't think that's who all of us are. Some of us, we absolutely take that seriously. And it's in part the core of our being or an extension of that. But I'm like, generally, you know, I, I grew up hearing um, from folks in my family, a job ain't nothing but work. And so I'm going to show up. I'm going to do this thing. It's going to help me get my coin. But the person that I get to be in classrooms, right, the instructor that I get to be for and with students, especially black and brown students, I'm like, there's no professional etiquette guide that helps me relate to students. Like when I, before I came to U of A, I was teaching in Portland. I was in a black studies department. And when I tell you like the extent to which me and my students can go into a classroom, talk shit and theory, like we can talk out the side of our neck. And it was like, and it wasn't about like how their voices look on a sheet of paper. Right. It wasn't about any of that. It was about the capacity to go into a reading, one of the most difficult, like theoretical readings they've encountered and walk away from it, not knowing everything, but understanding that for generations, people have been anticipating your arrival and as such, they've been building this massive archive of terms and resources to help you ward off the ills of white supremacy, right? And so with all of that, you know, it matters to me that students understand black folks have been anticipating their arrival so that they know that they're not in this alone. Right? And for me, there's no right way to survive. And so showing up to, showing up to work showing up to professional spaces, showing up with the belief that what you need to do is perform the thing that is deemed legible to your job, to your employer, performing that as if that is the thing that is going to save us is actually insufficient. It's always more, right? The things that we do to help each other survive don't show up in job descriptions, right? They do not. And so I'm much more interested in like going in classrooms and having one-on-one -on -one conversations with students that are like, no, how are you navigating, negotiating and surviving this place? Just because on some scholarships, the expectation on many diversity scholarships, the expectation is that students perform oppression. You have to perform the effects of anti-blackness and you're rewarded with that performance, hopefully with a check and with resources. And I'm like, so what happens when we understand that as a carefully constructed performance that is meant to help you get what you need to survive? It doesn't tell you who you are. It tells you that you can be who somebody else wants and needs you to be in order to feel good giving you what you already deserve. Thank you for that. The word performance keeps coming up a lot, right? You talk about performance a lot and you talk about people showing up and being. I want to kind of take a step back in professional conferences because that's something I struggle with as well. And I see 
gender show up a lot of times as well in a lot of those professional conferences. You think about a lot of folks who are like presenting, right? Like you're expected to be in a suit. You're expected to be dressed a certain way. You're expected to perform a certain way. You're expected to sound a certain way. And I think those folks bring that back to the campus as well. They use that same performance at the conference that they use at the university. So my question is, I guess more specific, how does, I, I see it, but how would you say that gender shows up in that performance as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it shows up with this. Um, we're made to believe that if we perform what is deemed normative, then it will grant us some form of security. That's not true. Right. The for My first couple of years on a tenure track, I, I used to really, really love to dress up. Right. And when I say dress up, I mean, it's like. I'm at Burlington because, you know, my checks <laughs> were like that. <laughs> like, go to Burlington, go, <laughs> go to get my ties. You know, I would go, you know, get my ties. I was, like, starching up my shirts. I still love to starch a pant. Like, I can't like no like starch pant. That's what I'm saying. If that know. pant can't stand up by itself, it ain't starch right. Come on, tell it. Tell it, right? It's like, so all that stuff, right? It, it's the, 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 the prepping for this particular kind of engagement with people. Like, the pleasure that I derive from that practice is different than a general expectation that when I show up to this place that I go to earn money, I need to be the so-called right kind of man. I need mm-hmm. to be a role model. I was like, that shit is a trap. Um, I'm actually not invested in doing that work, but it took me years to get away from that primarily because the expectation is, well, especially if you're a junior faculty member, right. Or grad student, it's like, no, you show up to this place and it's largely about demonstrating that you can be who the university expects you to be in order to get the credential that you're working so hard for. And in many ways, it's like, you can put on like a a shell, and, you know, enact that over and over and over and help people feel good about the fact that, well, you know, you're, you're black and you, and you speak well. I'm like, you mean talk good? I'm like, oh, you're <laughs> black and you speak well and you dress appropriately. And I'm like, but what you're deeming appropriate is actually like a extension of colonial logics. Are we not going to interrogate that? Like this is a space of like knowledge production and circulation, but we don't do that work because we're supposed to show up and want to help others feel good about our difference. And, you know, adhering to gender norms and conventions is one way to do it. Now, that's not to say that just because like I don a suit and a tie that I'm like acquiescing to the demands of white supremacy. No, I'm like, sometimes we can show up and show out even in our Sunday's best. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in grad school, there were, there were these two black professors um, at the University of Iowa. And two sisters would show up giving us high femme black ass realness every time. Hmm. Like you, you almost didn't want to be seen in public with them when they were together (laughs) because people are going to look at you like you ain't worth two dead fly smash together. Right. And, but you know, I see that performance and I recognize that it's not simply about how they believe they need to show up as black women in a professional environment. That's certainly a part of it. Right. Um, But there's this other part of it, which is like, you start paying particular kinds of attention to how it is that they style themselves, right? Like I think a lot about my homegirl, Tanisha. Tanisha Ford is an amazing historian who's got um, her first book, Liberated Thread. She talks about the strategic ways that um, black activists, particularly black women activists, um, use style to protect their bodies during the civil rights movement. Like she's got a whole book chapter and it's a separate journal article that's all on the strategic use of denim, which if you consider like the historical imagery of black folks in the South being hosed down, right? Imagine like being a black woman and wearing white or wearing your Sunday's best, right? And then being hosed down. Consider how that makes you physically and visually vulnerable, 
right? But then denim creates this other kind of effect, right? Where it like cloaks the body in these particular ways. And so Tanisha has that piece. I love it. It's, it's so good. But also like she was featured in a piece that came out when I was in grad school. Maybe it was New York Times or something had this whole editorial photo shoot on like stylish academics. And I don't think there was a black scholar in the bunch. Mm. And I was like, you know, to quote the, the late, for some people, great Amy Winehouse, <laughs> what kind of fuckery is this? Right. And so it's like you're going through this piece and I'm like thinking about all these fly ass black scholars who I know and who I've come across who show up to work and it might as well be a fashion show. Right. So for me, it's 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 important that we understand style as particularly black style as an articulation of agency and gender as one of the many things that black folk put on in order to navigate the world. So the professional expectations of how it is that we should present ourselves in the workplace actually fail. That stuff don't help us understand black life. But thinking specifically about what black folks are willing to put on to express themselves, that for me is like the thing to focus on. And so talking about that, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about people showing up and talking about like faculty. Is what is your perspective as well as about administrators? Right. Administrators and how administrators show up. Separate from faculty. What do you think? I just got here and I know that <laughs> now you knew I was gonna come in hot now. Black history <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Administrators, so like, yeah, I, I get it. You know, there are folks who are really, really invested in like showing up and like performing, performing that role model shit. Like, mm-hmm. I get it. I understand the utility. I'm not gonna knock people for it it's when it becomes coercive and it becomes imposed that I take issue with it. Right. And so there would be administrators who like, cool, suit up, literally suit up, go to work every day, do your thing. That's absolutely fine. That's about your choice. But then if you decide to use your position as an administrator to regulate and police um, the expression of black people on that same campus, I'm like, then we have a problem. Because now you're telling me like you're engaging in a politics of respectability wherein allegedly the way that we dress and how we speak and how we comport ourselves in public is somehow determining how it is that, you know, people who adhere to a white supremacist logic are going to treat us. And I'm like, that's not how power works. And so it's the fact that you as a black person can be in a position of power and then take on an anti-black politics and then push it on to people, essentially punching down. I'm like, then we got to call your aesthetic into question. Right. But now I have met some administrators who they're not invested in that kind of performance. Right. And I think that is rich. It is telling. It is necessary. But also I ain't kicked it with that many administrators. And so there's only so much I can say. (laughs) Yeah. And there's Black History Month. So I'm gonna like try to quote people and shit. And there's um, you ever heard the expression? Well, you heard the expression, all, kin- all skin folk ain't kin folk. Absolutely. Right? There's also, like, you might be my color, but you're not my kind. Oh. And I have met some folks who it's like, oh, the way that you do this work, like, you actually, you're more invested in talking about black bodies than you are about black people. Mm. Right? And when the work is about, like, the negation and the erasure and the whole nine, that actually doesn't leave much room, if any, for a discussion of, like, black agency, black choice, black decision. And that for me is like far more interesting, right? It's like white supremacy is mundane and boring. It's like we can expect like what's going to happen many times. That's in part why when stuff goes down on the internet, so many people are like, not surprised, not surprised, not surprised. 
But when we like invert that logic and then start thinking through how even black administrators have the potential and capacity for remaking our relationship to the university, that's not stuff that's going to happen in their official role. That's stuff that happens behind closed doors. It happens one-on-one. And I think that potential resides like at the administrative level, um, even at the faculty level, um, even at the staff level, right? Like it's, for, for me, there's a reason why when black students in California were protesting in the 1960s to forge, right, like black studies, departments, programs, the whole nine, they weren't just saying we want curricular interventions. They were saying we also want a black financial aid officer who can help put together an award package that reflects the kind of structural realities that we're navigating. And I'm like, y'all, that's like innovation and life survival work. And so I wish like more folks, administrators and even faculty like took on that kind of logic. It's very telling, I think, as well. Um, one of the most recent books I read was A Third University is Possible by Kay Wang. Yeah. And one of the things that Kay Wang said, and I always think about it, I always reflect on it, is we're all complacent. We're just at different levels of complacency. Tell it. And that's one of the things I always had to think about when reimagining the university. What does it look like to create like these small caucuses of change right, that push this narrative forward? Yeah. You know, like how do we actually examine the anti-blackness that's taking hormone bodies every day? Mm-hmm. And I want to go a little dig a little deeper in that, right? Like yeah. when you say black bodies, black agency, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so when I'm talking about black bodies, it's um who it's essentially using black pain and suffering as a metric for the ills of white supremacy. And so for instance, we say insert alarming statistic and then insert like social problem, right? Like if you are a black child that's going into the ER for emergency appendicitis, you are far less likely to have pain meds administered than a white child because the expectation is that you are both sub and superhuman, right? Using that metric as a basis for talking about what black people are doing or how black people respond for me isn't part of trap because you're not going to define my life by what somebody else does to me. Right. That's a black body discourse. Right. You're essentially just like accounting all of these moments of erasure and negation and regulation. And I'm like, but this black life work is, well, given the seeming impossibility of black survival. Right. And a black rich quality of life. What is it that black people do? Right. When you're like black people insert active verb, then you're talking about black life for me, like at a very kind of basic level. But when you have to like set up the horrors of anti-blackness and white supremacy before you can even entertain what it is that black folk do, then for me, that means that black life is an afterthought. And I take deep issue with that. I'm like, there are some contexts in which that work is useful, but I'm like, we are not a response. I refuse to accept the belief that we are simply a response to white hostility, right? Black folk been, right? Black folk been being, been doing the whole nine. And so I'm like trying to advocate for more approaches that center that very thing. Um, like we act, we don't simply react. Oh, that's awesome. And I think that when, so I, I, let me go another mm-hmm. route, still looking at anti-blackness. It, why is, or is it at all, anti-blackness important to other communities of color on college campuses? Let me take a little sip. <laughs> For a few years, I was like deeply immersed in this body of work that folks call Afro-pessimism, um, which my reading of it is Afro-pessimism is a way to understand the extent to which anti-blackness is the basis for participation in the world. That's not like the definition. It's my working definition. Um, and for me, all definitions are written in very faint pencil. 
um, so it can be remade. But in talking about that, it's important to understand that when anti-blackness is um, the weather, as Christina Sharp writes in In the Wake, then the general expectation is that in order to have one's identity or performance of identity be legible, then in part, shit on black people, right, in various capacities. So if we, in a very reductive way, thought about anti-blackness as the norm, there is no group, arguably, that can become a part of the dominant or be included or be represented without opting into anti-blackness. Right? You can consider how um, historians of whiteness and people in whiteness studies, and also like black folk been saying for years, that you know one of the first words that um, one of the first words that um, immigrants learn was nigga, right? And this is like coming through Ellis Island the whole nine, and so it's not like oh you going through Ellis Island like write your name right here and then here's this useful word. It's like no, one of the ways of demonstrating Americanness is by shitting on this group, right? And that that group is black people over and over and over. And so it doesn't have to always be as explicit as, oh, no, we hate black people. Like, no, that's actually not how it works, right? Generally, it's this expectation that what we need to do is not center black life, right? What we need to do is not consider how our own political investments are wrapped up in what happens to black people, right? And so in part, it's like you, you get to step on black folk in order to become a so-called full American over and over and over again, Right. It happens in scholarship. It happens in political discourses. And it's not to say that there haven't been moments of deep and intense rupture in terms of that politic. But anti-blackness is largely in part about encouraging people to take on a general disgust and abuse of a disgust of and abuse of black people and black bodies as a way to prove that they can be normal like everybody else. Right. And like queer scholars have been saying Shit, for at least 20 years now, at least 20, 25 years, like normal is a problem. We should be deeply suspicious of becoming or trying to make ourselves normal in a society that is rooted in power relations. Right. If, if you think about like the pursuit of normal, especially in the context of blackness, is one of the things that incentivizes pathology. Right. And so by that, I mean, this is really dope political scientists and theorists. Um, Kathy Cohen has got this book, Boundaries of Blackness. And in her work, she talks about how black people can be heterosexual, but not heteronormative. Right. And so in that, it's like as a black person, right, as a black person, sexuality is never going to be normative. Your blackness negates the capacity for one to be normal. So then claim abjection. Right. Claim the outside. Right. Be other than pursue otherwise ways of like making kinship and family and intimacy in part because, um, you know, I every few months, at least every few months, get into some kind of argument. It ain't like a spirited debate. It's a whole ass argument with somebody about the status of the so-called black family. And I'm like, so I'll take the morning hand report, that report that was commissioned to help people understand race relations, I think in the 50s, 60s. And people will selectively read the Moynihan Report and say, well, you know, the root of pathology in black communities is the black woman. Now, mind you, this is after a couple of sections where the research team to put this report together was like, hey, slavery and Jim Crow put black communities at a structural disadvantage, right? Like they say that for two sections. It's right there. And then they say, but, you know, if you want to understand what's really going on, especially with the black family, 
what you need to do is focus on black women. And so this really slippery thing happens, which folks really, really love to hold on to, which is instead of critiquing white supremacy and anti-blackness, you then switched our attention to focus on the careful regulation of black women. And so the expectation then is, well, if we need to fix what's happening in families, if we need to make it so that black folks stop having queer kids, if we need to fix the school to prison pipeline, right? Like what we need to do is focus more on the regulation of black women's bodies. Why? In part, because if black women were not being these so-called castrating matriarchs, then black men would be able to take their rightful place as patriarch in a black household. Right. And so it's the loss of the black patriarch. The story goes, or at least like some of the ashiest correspondence on the Internet would have us believe is that the problem with the black community is that black men can't be fathers. And I'm like, well, hold on. So you're taking a white supremacist framing of a family, grafting it onto black people and saying, now, mind you, a black family can never be normal under white supremacy and anti-blackness. But you're saying that this family figuration, which is a carryover of white supremacy, is now failing because of black women, not because the proposition was a trap in the first place. And so then we have generations of folks saying over and over and over, what you need to do if you want to fix this shit is you need to fix black women, right? Or you need to save black men and boys over and over and over. I'll stop that. Came in hot. Brought <laughs> us some heat. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, I mean, it needs to be stated. I mean, it's even conversations about the work that we do and masculinities in the mix. And, you know, if you're gonna examine um, and provide support, you need to be supporting the most marginalized person, right? The most marginalized people in these spaces, right? In in the the fetishization of examining the black masculine person, right, in itself becomes like an issue. Yeah, right? it yeah, becomes yeah. problematic. And so keeping that same energy, what does that look like on these, on the campus, right? On a lot of these predominantly or historically white campuses, what does that look like? Because that narrative, I believe, is carried over, right? Or like the black woman or even ignoring those black femme bodies. Like, what does that look like? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I tend to see it because I don't, um, I don't spend much time on the campuses that I work at anymore. That's just, you know preservation, but also I'm, I'm really particular about the ways that I'm visible at work. And so one of the ways that it shows up for me in my capacity as an instructor is in syllabi. Right? Like um, Kristen Smith, this black anthropologist, um, started a campaign a few years ago called Sight Black Women. And this piece is so, the whole campaign is so dope. They got a whole crew of scholars that are participating, and it's largely about advancing the recognition of the scholarly contributions of black women. For me, that becomes critical because that's the basis for my syllabi creation. I'm like, I'll go in and I'll talk with my students and I ask them to take a really critical look at syllabi for other courses. And I'm like, so how much, how many of your readings are by black folk? How many of them are by black women, femmes, queer folk, trans folk, the whole nine? And oftentimes that leads to a larger conversation about what kinds of perspectives are being um, constructed on college campuses, which ones are being deemed representative of whatever community. What I realized was that shifting my curriculum to focus on the contributions of black women, right, and black feminist scholarship has made more students comfortable thinking about power and wrestling with power. Right. And also like bringing more of themselves to a classroom because they feel like they have not just like a it's not just a commitment to education. Most times it's not even that, actually. It's a commitment to themselves. Right. And being happy that they're finally 
they finally feel like they're in a space where they're getting language to talk about who they are, what they want, and what they don't want, right? And so, for instance, when I'm talking with my students about gender, gender and sexuality, I was like, y'all, but what if, what if you was just black? Like, what if you wasn't trying to be, like, a good man or a good woman? What if you were just black first? Like, and you didn't have to use gendered language. How would you talk about yourself? How would you describe the forms of intimacy that you make? How would you describe the ways that you fall in love with yourself and others? And also, how would you talk about failures? Right? That's all. But, the, you know, that, that kind of relationship, that kind of engagement has also made it possible for my students to say, like, black folks that come into my classroom that are mask of center right? and being like, hey, but where's the scholarship for, like, the way that I'm performing this? Where's the scholarship for how it is that like that that people treat me or you know like I've I've had for instance one of my mentees this really great kid named Angel Angel and I would sit in my office we'd also like sit in class and we'd just be like talking through black masculinity we've been talking about like Angel's investment in masculinity as somebody who's living in a world as just like this black butch right black butch navigating the world and people wrestling with their performance of gender. Right. And at times it's like playing around with pronouns like it could be on a Tuesday. Angel's like, no, like I'm a whole ass young black woman that's performing masculinity. Right. But then the next day it could be like a whole 12 hours later. And it's like I'm using they pronouns today. And I'm like another day be like, no, like I'm just just stud like today is just stud. I'm black stud today. Right. And so for me, it's I love that play with language. Right. And I love the angel, the agency that this kid is expressing and saying, no, these terms actually don't ever get to the core of who I am. Right. And so for me, like going in and pushing the not, not pushing, like you know, I'm peddling curriculum, but going <laughs> in and like using curricular interventions to help give students a broader understanding of what kinds of questions are being raised and what kinds of terms are being advanced is largely, I think, me giving them permission or using this scholarship to give them permission to opt out of who they think they're working towards becoming, right? Many of them feel like, well, but if the articles and the books that I've come across in these other classrooms haven't included me, then I'm the problem, right? The issue is that I need to make myself more legible. And I'm like, but Loki, what if you didn't? Like, what if the push to become legible on somebody else's terms is actually one of the most, you know, arguably like benevolent forms of violence one can take up. You think you need to come to a space that is inherently hostile to your being, learn a bunch of shit that excludes you in all of these different ways. And then you believe that, especially if you have a scholarship attached to it, what you need to become is the very manifestation of the thing that the school doesn't make room for. And so with that understanding, we're like, come into this classroom, let's talk about blackhood. And let's also figure out, let's figure out what aspects of your personhood are being left out, right? Because that erasure is intentional. And so it then becomes our work to figure out what kinds of spaces we can create so that you can thrive. And sometimes that space is like, you know, you finding a friend in the classroom. Sometimes it's like you finding a piece of writing that really resonates with you. Sometimes it's you being able to come in and ask questions and like really come for the kind of ashiest politics um, that people spew at you on the Internet. And for the past few years, I've been really fortunate to be able to do that in my classrooms with black students. Oh, that's awesome. So we are kind of running out of time here, but this has been great. It's been an awesome conversation. What we like to do towards the end is ask folks what piece of advice would they give to students navigating 
Damn. <laughs> the university. Can I pair that with a quote? Yeah. Okay, cool. So I had this thing. I meant to read this earlier. So this poet, um, Dinesh Smith, check out Dinesh's work. They do some really, really wonderful, wonderful work. Um, this is from a piece called Notes for a Film on Black Joy. Um, just to like set up this quote. It opens with the speaker in the poem like being, I always imagine like a black queer kid, 13, 14. Black kid who might be queer if we're going to use that language. And they're watching... Um, D'Angelo's untitled video and I don't know if y'all have seen it if you remember it D'Angelo is standing there and like naked as mm-hmm. brown fleshy glory and <laughs> so this kid is like feeling all these feels there's this one particular moment that I love now you got to envision that this kid is like sitting on the floor it's maybe summertime that video is on and they're just being like compelled to move closer and closer and closer to the TV so much so that they're like pressing their forehead against it, trying to see down D'Angelo's body. <laughs> um, so Smith writes, you don't know what you are, but you know, you shouldn't be, but you know that when D'Angelo sings, how he sings, looking, how he looks inside you, something breaks open. And then that odd flood of yes, a storm you can't call a storm, but the wind sounds like your name. So many students that I've taught and continue to learn and think and grow with sit with those storms, right? Bring those storms to the campus, bring them to classrooms, the whole nine. And somehow they begin to believe, just like I used to believe, that our work is about keeping that storm contained. And I'm like, well, no, part of this work, part of education is figuring out how to get yourself free, however that looks for you. And if you want, giving that language. And so I'm like, trust a storm, trust a flood, trust yourself, right? Break open. Like, you might just save yourself. Wow. That was dope. I appreciate you, Darius, coming through. Yeah, yeah. This was amazing. Thank you for coming through. Um, yeah, well, that'll be it, though. What a shift. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at ShiftingUA, where we will be posting updates and other great content. You can also reach us with questions at uofamoc at gmail.com. We will be releasing a new episode in two weeks. See you soon. Same. If that pen can't stand up by itself, it ain't starch right. Come on, tell it. Tell it.